Well, good evening. We're thankful you're here this evening. If you've got your Bibles, you can be turning to the book of Exodus in chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. We're grateful you're here this evening. I hope that you will be encouraged by our time together this evening and our opportunity to study together and that you will think, uh, have good thoughts as you go into the work week and the things that lie before us. We appreciate so much your attendance and the encouragement that we have from being here together. As we've mentioned several times already, we've been studying the book of Acts. I will tell you tonight that the lesson that we're going to take a look at this evening is the one that really kind of put me on the thought process of attempting to do that. Uh, I've kind of been the one, Charles and Shannon have headed up our Lads to Leaders program. They had asked me if, if I would be the one to help direct and, and guide the kids through the Bible Bowl practices. And so it's kind of been on my mind as I've been trying to study with them and encourage them along that way. But as we started last year, I believe it was, the end of last year actually taking a look at a series of lessons uh, that I told you I'd borrowed from my father-in-law, but they were considered a, a series, if you will, that we took a look at different times about people who were lost in the credits. And since I'd heard them pre him present those before and had the list he had kind of gone through, I was looking through and thinking which ones might be good for us to look at, and I stumbled across one from the book of Exodus that we're going to take a look at tonight. And I thought, well, that would be kind of interesting. Would just be good if we, we took a, a several week or maybe even a month long look at Exodus to help encourage our young people, but included in that, we could even go through one of our lessons talking about being lost in the credits. And that's what we're going to do this evening. Some of you may recall from your time in school or from hearing even in the news, December 1st, 1955. We even talked about this the other night in our Valentine's dinner as we did a little pop quiz on things from the 50s. But it was December 1st, 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama, that as one particular lady decided to board a bus and pick her seat, which at the time was dictated by certain laws and by certain people that only certain folks could sit on one particular section of the bus. And as Miss Rosa Parks boarded the bus, took her seat, and if you've ever studied this in school, as you probably have, and recall what all took place on that bus on that day, her being asked to move, her refusing to move, the bus driver saying, you know, I will call the police unless you give up your seat for this white man. And she said, you know, go ahead, you can call the police. And they did, of course, and she was actually arrested and booked because of not obeying the commands there, the laws that were given at the time. Of course, that was an actual picture of the bus that you can visit as we know and we think about the history of these United States and the things that were done at that time. But we, we think about Rosa Parks, who passed away several years ago, and the impact that she made and all the different things that were done during that time period, the different things that were taking place not only in the state of Alabama, but certainly across these United States. And because of that, of course, there's been a lasting impact. And as we've considered folks who would be lost in the credits, there was even a movie that, that bore that name, of course. And when we think about people who are lost in the credits, Rosa Parks wouldn't necessarily fit into that. When you say the name Rosa Parks, many people, uh, and of course, know that name from studying her in school and what took place. But there have been various documentaries or, or various movies that have been made to consider Rosa Parks. Now, she may not be lost in the credits, but as we've taken a look at this series, what we've attempted to say is that many times people who are lost in the credits, and as we've looked at through the Bible and the various people that we've talked about, they may become well-known, but at least they may have started as someone who was ordinary. 
I don't know that Rosa Parks, you know, went to work that day, went to get on the bus expecting to be remembered in the year 2019. She did, of course, because of the stand that she took or what she decided to do, become someone who became famous and well-known for what she did. But, but I would guess that, that if you were to be able to talk to her today, if she were to be here, that she would probably feel like somebody who was very ordinary, but someone who was willing to do something that was extraordinary. To make a stand. And so as we have thought about all of these different people through this series from the Bible, some whose name we might not even have known, some whose name is listed one time, we're trying to remind ourselves, of course, that there is work for us to do. There are things to be done. We may not get top billing. We may not be the first name that scrolls across the screen when it comes to the credits. But even though we may feel ordinary, we can make an impact on those around us. Tonight we want to talk not only about one lady, but actually two ladies from Exodus chapter 1 and verses 15 through 22, who are again given by name, even if it is very briefly. Tonight we're going to talk about Sifra, or however you may want to pronounce it, in Pua. If you've got your Bible there to Exodus chapter 1, let's actually read these verses to remind ourselves not only of what we know of this story, but maybe what you might have missed as we look at it again. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, or of whom the name of one was Sifra and the other was Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? Verse 19, And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. I believe you're familiar with this particular section, although you may not have been familiar with the names of these two Hebrew midwife ladies. Now, there's a good chance, although we may not know for sure, that these two ladies in particular we might call them the bosses, if you will. They may have been the bosses of the Hebrew midwives because by some estimates and some accounts, there may have been up to as many or no less than 250 Hebrew midwives. When we start counting up and thinking about the children of Israel that they're going to become here, then you know it may have been a, a, over 250 different Hebrew midwives that were needed. So Sifra and Pua may have just been the bosses, if you will. May be no way to know that for sure, but it seems that they might have been singled out. But some things that we do know. Number one, they were two faithful women who feared God. Again, verse number 17 says very plainly, they feared God and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Now, because of this, because they were willing to do this, this resulted in verifiable love, if you will, for God's people, the children of Israel. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 18, John says, My little children, let us not love in word and neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. That's interesting. So is it that we shouldn't talk about what we're going to do? 
I wouldn't say that. But what John may be saying here is don't just talk about it. If you're going to talk about it, then do more than simply talk about it. We know that we're supposed to be people of action. We even talked about that in our lesson this morning. And these two Hebrew midwives were women who were willing to take action. And so it resulted in something that could be verified, something that God could look down upon and say, this is so, I can recognize this. They're not just saying that they love me, but they're willing to go so far as to do this, to prevent this from happening, to show that they love me. We recognize even as well, thinking about being a slave, if you will, or being there in bondage in Egypt, that these two Hebrew midwives were not afraid to withstand the might of Pharaoh, and they were willing to probably put their own neck on the line, risk their own lives for God and for his people because of the stance that they were willing to take. The other Hebrew midwives might have been able to say, well, you know what? Pharaoh's not at my door, so I, I can either do it or not do it or kind of take it or leave it. But apparently they were called on by name. They were called to the carpet, whether they were the bosses or not. They were not afraid and willing to do and not only say, but to do these things. And of course, as we know, through the book of Exodus in chapter 1 and even on into chapter 2 there with the birth of Moses, that they were able to succeed. They were able to hinder the evil intentions of the Egyptian king. But not only that, if you were paying attention as we read in verse number 21, the Bible tells us that God blessed them. Verse 21 says that he gave them families, that he provided households for them, depending on the version that you're looking at. Because of what they were willing to do, the stance that they were willing to take, God blessed them. We've not even got to the birth of Moses yet, as we've talked about him the last couple of Sunday mornings. But here we see people who love God, who are willing to do something, who are willing to act upon it, who are willing to be obedient. And because of that, even as we discussed this morning, they were going to be blessed by God. What are we talking about? What are we talking about? As you look at your outline there, that's very simply that we're talking about civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. Now this word is not used, or these words are not used in Scripture. It's not exactly said that way. Those exact words are not used, but that is what it is. We can take a look at what they're doing and see that they are practicing civil disobedience. How do we know that? Well, we can think about the definition. Civil disobedience is the active, professed refusal to obey certain laws, demands, or commands of a government or of an occupying international power. Notice the last sentence there. Civil disobedience is sometimes, sometimes, though not always, defined as being nonviolent resistance. Now when you think, about to think back to December 1st, 1955, when you think about the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and leading on up and other things that have taken place, specifically maybe even in these United States, we see people who might be classified as practicing civil disobedience. Many times maybe that was nonviolent, but oftentimes it is resistance or it is, <coughs> excuse me, the refusal to practice these certain things that a government has commanded or ordered to be done. So we see that here in Exodus chapter 1. 
What we'd like to do in the next few moments, and I didn't really leave you room in our outline per se, if you're filling out that out and following along, but you, if you take notes, might jot down to the side. Is it found anywhere else in the Bible? Let's look through a few different passages. First of all, tonight in Joshua chapter 2. You may recall in Joshua chapter 2 that the children of Israel have just crossed the Jordan and Rahab is the place or her house is the place where the spies or these two men are going. In Joshua chapter 2 beginning in verse number 1, they come to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodge there. And in verse number 2, it was told the king of Jericho saying, behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. And in verse number four, then the woman took the two men and hid them. And she goes on to explain to those who have come, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And she explains on down from there. Rahab disobeys a command from the king of Jericho. Now, that's interesting. For one, with the example of Rahab, because if Rahab here in this instance did not practice or was not guilty of civil disobedience, then it might have been that she wasn't going to make it into the lineage, into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But she is listed there. And part of that happens in what takes place here because she directly disobeys what the king of Jericho has told her to do. In 1 Samuel chapter, four, or excuse me, chapter 14 and verse number 24, we read of another example. <coughs> Pardon me. 1 Samuel chapter 14, where there is recorded a command given by King Saul. And King Saul and those who are gathered there are in battle. They're in the heat of the battle. They're trying to take down the Philistines. And while they're doing that, King Saul gives a command. As chapter 14 and verse number 24 begins, that no one could eat. He says, we're going to take down these Philistines. No one should be eating or doing anything. But as you go down through there, and of course, for the sake of time tonight, we don't have time to look at all of this. But as we go down through there, we see in verse number 24, excuse me, on down to verse number 26 and 25 there, that Jonathan comes to some honey or a honeycomb there. And he takes the rod or the spear that is in his hand in verse number 27, and he dips it into the honeycomb, and he puts his hand to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. Now here is Jonathan who has disobeyed a direct command from the king. And so because the king has said back in verse number 24 and following that whoever does this shall die, we got a problem on our hands. But as we go on down further to chapter 14 of 1 Samuel and verse number 45, the people say unto Saul, shall Jonathan die? Jonathan's their general. Jonathan's the one guiding them into battle. Shall Jonathan die? Who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel? And they use a phrase that we talked about even this morning. We mentioned, God forbid, or may it never be so. As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he hath wrought with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, that he died not. We see here someone disobeying a command 
disobeying the king. Was it sinful? I would submit to you tonight that it was not. But that's not where we're going to stop as we consider this point. Continuing on, in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse number 3, we meet someone named Obadiah. Not the same Obadiah that you'll find wrote the book of the Bible. But as Elijah in chapter 17 has proclaimed the drought and then sort of disappeared or was gone for three years, as he comes back in 1 Kings chapter 18, the first person that he meets is this Obadiah. And in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse number 3, we read that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. He feared the Lord greatly. And in verse number 14, we see the example of that. Because we understand that while Jezebel, and we know old Jezebel, and we think about Jezebel and Ahab, but for, so it was that while Jezebel was seeking to kill the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 of those prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water. So Obadiah, as we saw in Exodus chapter 1, with these two Hebrew midwives, feared the Lord. And in verse number 4, he clearly demonstrates it. He doesn't just talk about it, we say, but he actually is about it by protecting and providing guidance and protection for these prophets of God. Because Queen Jezebel, as she oftentimes was, is on the rampage, seeking whom she may kill. And so Obadiah takes this chance to protect these 100 prophets and demonstrates that he fears God. Shows that he's willing to disobey the, the Queen Jezebel and what she has told to be done and protect these people. Again, is it sinful? I would say no. I think it's civil disobedience. Continuing on, 2 Kings chapter 11 when we come to 2 Kings chapter 11, you may recall the uh, story or the tale, if you will, what, all that we know of King Jehoshaphat. Oh, King Jehoshaphat was good. He had some good things about him. King Jehoshaphat was bad. He had some bad things about him. Unfortunately for King Jehoshaphat, one of the negative things, one of the worst things that he was going to do or willing to do was that he refused to not have fellowship with King Ahab. And of course, not only with Ahab, but with Jezebel. In fact, when you look at the Bible, depending on the version that you're looking at, around these passages, as it talks about Jehoshaphat, the Bible says that he joined affinity. Joined affinity with Ahab and Jezebel. Now, one thing that means is that their kids are going to get married. All right, so they're going to have their children get married. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if you can imagine sitting across the Thanksgiving table from Queen Jezebel. That sounds a little scary to me, especially as she picks the knife up off the table. You might want to make sure she's not willing to throw that or cut your throat with it. But one of the problems that King Jehoshaphat had is they're going to have this marriage. He's not willing to stop having fellowship with Ahab and Jezebel. And so from that line, as we go on into 2 Kings chapter 11, we're informed of Atalia. And her power-hungry, blood-thirsty, and ungodly ways. She was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and the wife of Jehoram, and the mother of Ahaziah. Now, this particular lady here, in 2 Kings chapter 11, she reigned as queen for six years. And she was able, through that, to kill all of her grandchildren except one, 
Joash, maybe a name that you recognize, who was hidden by her daughter, Jehosheba. And so when we look at 2 Kings chapter 11, and we think about all these family things that are going on, all the evil ways that are taking place here, we come to this Joash who was protected. And in 2 Kings chapter 11, beginning in verse number 4, Jehodiah, a godly priest, gathered faithful men around him and declared Joash to be the rightful king. She thought she'd killed everybody off, was doing her best to make sure everybody was gone. There's no survivors with anybody, but Joash is protected. And this Jehodiah, a godly priest, is willing to declare him the king. And so as we go on down through chapter 11, this evil queen, uh, Queen Italia, is put to death. In verse number 17, the covenant was renewed. And in verse number 18, Baal's priest, Baal's images, and his altar were destroyed. There's a bit of a reformation or a restoration, if you will, (coughs) because of this. Because of what these people were willing to do. The queen is put to death with God's approval. So I ask you again, is this sinful? I would say no. Maybe to a couple of stories that are a little more familiar to you. Especially, hopefully, if you've been in class with us on Wednesday night. Daniel chapter 3, we meet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to the golden idol, the statue, the, the disobedience, in disobedience to King Nebuchadnezzar's command. Guess what? They violated the civil law. But not only that, we come to chapter 6. And Daniel defies King Darius' decree to not pray to anyone other than the king. Guess what? He's violating the civil law. But in both cases, God rescued his people from what was the death penalty that was imposed upon them. And I would submit to you that, in a way, he might be signaling his approval of their actions. Now, one thing we talked about in our class on Wednesday night Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, God doesn't do that for everybody. Just because you might practice civil, civil disobedience doesn't mean God's going to spare your life. But at least in these two cases, we see people who were spared because they were willing to not obey the civil law that went against God's law. Let's go to the New Testament for just a moment here before we make some application. First of all, Acts chapter 4. <coughs> Acts chapter 4 and verses 18 through 20. As we think about Peter and John, this example may be a little more familiar to you. Peter and John are called and commanded not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. You know, I think that's really interesting. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but it's kind of interesting that Peter and John look at them and say, you know what? You tell us. You be the judge. Would it be better that we would pay attention to what you've told us to do? Or would it be better to pay attention to the God of heaven who has bestowed these great things upon us? You guys tell us which one we should do. But they go on to say, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And then on later, in chapter 5 and verse number 29, the rulers confront them again and reminded them of their command to not teach about Jesus. But Peter responded, we must obey God rather than men. Yeah, I think this sums up 
our lesson pretty good right here. We might just stop right there. But when we think about it and we want to take all of this in, all of these examples that we've looked at, let's make a few application, applications for ourselves this evening. What conclusions could we possibly draw? Number one, thank you, brother. Number one, Christians should resist a government that commands or compels evil and should work nonviolently within the laws of the land to change a government that permits evil. I know that there's a lot written there. I'll give you a minute as you kind of take that in. But when we think about what Christians should be doing, they should resist a government. But notice, a government that commands or compels evil. Now, I ask you the question, does that exist today? Maybe not in these United States exactly, but I would say we would have to agree very possibly among the world powers and Christians should resist a government that would cause people to do evil or notice there do their best to change that of the land to change a government that permits evil number two civil disobedience is permitted when the government's laws or commands are in direct violation of God's laws and commands Again, notice again that it is permitted when the government's laws or demands or demands are in direct violation of God's laws and demands. Number three, if a Christian disobeys an evil government, unless he can flee from the government, then he should accept that government's punishment for his actions. Now, it may be, as some were doing, as we look at these different examples, that for a time you may be able to leave a particular area and be, uh, be able to avoid that. But if you're not and you choose to be and to practice civil disobedience, then you should accept that punishment because you are disobeying the laws of the land, even if you are doing so because you believe it's what God would have you to do. Number four, Christians are certainly permitted to work to install new government leaders within the laws that have been established. We know very well how blessed we are to live in this great country. It's not very much perfect at all, has a lot of problems. We're also very thankful for the opportunities that we have to vote, to make our voice heard, to be able to speak out on things. This congregation cares about that and has talked a lot about that, and I appreciate that. And I want to encourage you to know that we should be striving within the laws of the land, within what our government is, to practice these things. To practice these things and do our best to make sure that our country is following after God. Our leaders are following after God. And sometimes that's a little easier said than done. But it's certainly something that we can be working towards. And then even finally this evening, Christians are commanded to pray for their leaders and for God to intervene in his time to change any ungodly path that they are pursuing. Is that biblical? Well, think about what Paul told Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. We should be praying for our leaders. I hear that here from time to time from our prayers that are led in a public sense or maybe in a classroom uh, type of setting. We hear that, and we should be striving to pray for our leaders that the right thing would be done. We see it every once in a while. Other times we struggle with it when our leaders don't 
do what God would have them to do, but certainly we should be striving for that. Is there any other final applications that we should make? Maybe one is that we would take a look in other areas of our life. Are there other areas of our life in which this might apply? Well, absolutely, because ultimately it is a matter of ultimate authority. The question is, who is ultimately in control? That's the question here with what we're talking about tonight. Maybe it applies to the employer and the employee relationship. Are we to obey our employers at all cost at everything that we do? What if they're asking us to cheat? What if they're asking us to steal? Just fudge the numbers just a little bit. What about when it comes to a teacher-student relationship or a coach or an athlete or a husband or a wife? What if it comes down to parents and children? You ever known any parents that would send their kids into the store and say, hey, let's go shoplift together. Let me show you how it's done so that we can have what we need. Would that child have to obey its parents in that sense? Or there might there be a way that we could have that. And even as we thought about today, what about elders in a congregation? We need to consider this type of principle. But what we could really sum it up by saying tonight is this. Nobody, nobody has the authority to insist that anyone do anything which is provably wrong. I don't care who you're related to. I don't care how much power you think you have. I don't care how much money you have. And nobody should care about any of those things. Nobody, nobody has the authority to insist that anyone do that which is provably wrong. Maybe the psalmist says it best in Psalm 19 and verse number 9. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God's revealed truth is determined by him to be what is right and just and the best without exception. I can think I know better. An elder can think he knows better. The deacons can think they know better. Anybody can think they know better. But God knows what's right. And it proves time and time again that he is right and he is just. And he knows what's best without exception. Civil disobedience. Maybe you've considered it before. We've all talked about Daniel. We've all talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Maybe you've even heard of some of those other examples that we've talked about tonight. I would submit to you that it's something that we can and maybe should practice under the right circumstances. We sort of had to kind of go through some of those applications a little quickly, but I hope that you'll consider all of those things because there may be a time when we need to practice civil disobedience in the right manner, in the right way, according to what God has told us to do. And may we always remember that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Tonight, as we conclude our lesson we ask for you to consider your life and where you stand in your relationship with God. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never been obedient to his gospel plan of salvation. Maybe you've never become a Christian, putting on Christ in baptism. We would gladly help you do that this evening. We would gladly study with you even more if you're interested in knowing what the Bible has to say about salvation. Maybe you're here tonight and you've done that before, but you've allowed sin to enter your life and you stand in need of forgiveness. Maybe it's in a public sense and you need to repent publicly. Maybe it's something in your life that you need to pray to God that it would be forgiven as he is faithful to do just that. Maybe you're here tonight and you need the prayers of this congregation. We are ready and willing to encourage you in any way that we can, even now as we stand together and as we sing.